This is not the media. This is hell. The pandemic has revealed that the state response to a crisis is not that great. In fact, it's pretty awful, and far too often it brings about a police response. And as we have seen over the past few months, that police response can be disproportionate, violent, and brutal. So what happens when this public health crisis is joined by yet another crisis like climate change? Can we expect more of the same? Protests, police violence, armed counter-protesters. If this is how the state responds to this crisis, is this how we will re- they'll respond to every crisis with more cops acting increasingly aggressive against the people they're supposed to serve and protect? and not view as the enemy. We'll talk police crisis and climate change in a few when we will be speaking with writer and philosophy scholar Olufemi Otaiwo, who posted the Descent Magazine article, Climate Apartheid is the Coming Police Violence Crisis. You can find out more about Olufemi by going to his website, olufemiotaiwo.com. And you can follow Olufemi on Twitter, again, at Olufemi. Oh, Taiwo. It's spelled exactly like it sounds, and the last name is T A I W O. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, whatever this is, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is what are you telling yourself when you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself when you vote for? Joe Biden. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell truckers cap. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell truckers cap and all our new merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your message or your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorton and the moment of truth. This week, Jeff asks... What color is your smoke? What color is your smoke? Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We're still getting caught up on our email that piled up here in the office near or over our uh, one week summer break a couple weeks back. Stephen emailed about the passing of past guest on our show, David Graber. Hi, Chuck and Alex. I was revisiting all your David Graber interviews, and the BS Jobs one was the last one. I'm crying and laughing that at the beginning of the interview, you tell him you can't say the actual name of the title of his book on the air, BS Jobs. Within the first five minutes, you say it once, and David says it's twice, and you both giggle about it. It certainly brings me joy to hear David's voice. David had one of the best laughs that we have ever had on our show. He actually giggled. He, he giggled. He giggled more than anybody I have ever heard in my life. More than almost any infant that I've ever heard in my life. And it was so damn cute. 
Stephen continues, I've also been enjoying The Silver Jews. You or Alex are playing as introductions to the episode. That's Alex's doing. Stephen asks, have you listened to Purple Mountains? It was David Berman's, also of Silver Jews, solo project that he he released shortly before his death about a year ago. It's beautiful, funny, and sad. Alex, Purple Mountains, are you familiar with that work? Oh, yeah, I had tickets to uh, his show, and then... uh he committed suicide. <laughs> yeah, big fan of uh, David Berman's work. Uh, can I give you a list of musical artists? I don't want you to buy tickets to their shows because I would rather that they don't kill themselves. <laughs> Steven ends with, anyways, RIP to both of those Davids, Graber and Berman. Excellent people who died far too soon. Signed, Steven. Speaking of people who died far too soon, another past guest recently passed away, Kevin Zeese. He was on our show dating back to the early 2000s to discuss his work in fighting against the war on drugs. He was also an adamant opponent of the Iraq War and a supporter of universal health care. Kevin was on our show several times, including appearing with his wife, the pediatrician and universal health care advocate, Margaret Flowers. This weekend, we will be sharing at least one of our conversations with Kevin that is currently unavailable online. So be looking for that as well. Here's uh, something I found out about Kevin that I did not know. Like Margaret, he ran for the U.S. Senate on the Green Party ticket. Kevin was also the first third-party candidate to be invited and participate in a three-way debate with members of the two major parties during his run for the Senate. So look for our interviews with Kevin and maybe the one we did with him and Margaret at the same time which we will be sharing. I believe we'll be doing that on Sunday. We got a guest suggestion all the way from New Zealand, so no wonder it took so long to get here. Kelly writes, Hi Chuck, long-time listener here. Love the show. I'll keep this brief. Have you read anything by Turkish-American author Jarrett Kobeck, particularly his latest novel, Only Americans Burn in Hell? Highly recommended. He writes crazy satire for our hellish modern world. If you can get him on the show, I think he'd be a great guest. Cheers from New Zealand. Kelly, while we do not generally do fiction on our show, a satire called Only Americans Burn in Hell does sound right for This Is Hell. So, Kelly, I promise to look into it and see if this is actually fiction we can discuss here on the show. Brendan DM'd us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, writing, could you pass a request to Chuck and see if he'd be willing to sign on to this letter denouncing Facebook's mass purge of anarchists. I'm buddies with Tim Holland, better known as the rapper producer, or sorry, rapper podcaster Soul, and he asked me to work my left media and academic networks to try to get more people to sign on. If you have any questions or concerns, do not hesitate to ask. In solidarity, Brendan, sure, I'll sign a petition against the mass purge of anarchists from Facebook, and if you have a petition that includes the words purge, anarchists, and Facebook, send it to me at chuckatthisishell.com and I'll definitely sign it. Chris emailed while we were on break. Hey, Chuck, I hope you uh, enjoyed your vacation and hopefully decompressing from this stressful time. But I was uh, wondering if you had any reading or other sources of information, suggestions about how Obama's neoliberal policies and specifically his handling of the banks in 2008 gave way, way to the Tea Party and eventually Trump. This is an idea I have a vague grasp upon, and I have heard it come up on your show in the past. Anyways, hope you are staying safe and having fun. Thanks, Chris. That is a good topic, Chris, for a book and for an interview. And to be honest, I don't know if there has been any books written specifically on Obama's policies, possibly causing the rise of Trump. Uh, I mean, I've read articles. Uh, Trevor Tim was writing articles when it comes to surveillance and when it comes to um, immigration at The Guardian. 
But yeah, I haven't seen of any books on that topic. So if anyone does have a reading suggestion about how Obama's actions in 2008 may have led to the rise of Donald Trump, please send it to us because that would make a great discussion here on This Is Hell. A couple weeks ago, we told you how a listener was concerned that a package they sent to us got lost in the mail, but it has arrived. You can send anything you want to us here at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And I mean anything, apparently, because... We've been getting very interesting stuff in the mail. First, Andrew sent me something called a flex bar, an exercise tool to help my tennis elbow or whatever I have, because I really don't know what I have, so I cannot go see my doctor due to the pandemic. The exercise bar came with uh, photoshopped images of me doing the exercises to fix my elbow, and they are they're very thoughtfully described in large print. So thanks, Andrew. I, th- I think the, it's actually helping, those exercises are. Or maybe what's helping me is what arrived in the mail from Wild Folk Farm in Maine. You may remember me reading on air an email about how these people had sent me, uh, Wild Folk Farm had sent me some CBD mani- medicinals, but they'd gotten lost in the mail. Well, it finally showed up, and thanks to the Wild Folks who sent me all the CBD stuff, there's a balm that I've been applying to my arm, which seems to be in constant pain. I have no idea if it's helping, but it smells good. There are also three bottles with eyedroppers, one labeled Viral Defense and Immune Tonic, which I will be trying this weekend. There's also something called Nervine Adaptogen, and it says something like, this is what it says a little bit about it. CBD hemp provides support to the endocannabinoid system, which is responsible for choreographing the functions of nearly all processes in our bodies. You had me at endocannabinoid system. They also sent me something called MCT oil tincture, which they recommend if you wish to experiment with increasing your dosage of a certain concentration to learn which dosage works best for your condition. I have no idea what any of this means, but it It did end with the word inebriation, which caught my eye. So I will be experimenting with the CBD stuff all weekend long, and I will report back on what happens to me. Finally, David C. got in touch with us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. David writes, Hey, y'all, wanted to promote Olufemi Otaiwo as a future guest. This recent piece linking the pending climate apocalypse brought on by capitalism, linked to policing, is a great and important analysis. Also, full disclosure, he's a comrade of mine from when we both were union stewards for the University of California Student Worker Union, UAW 2865. That's a really great suggestion, David, and we're going to really act on it as fast as possible. In fact, we'll be talking to Olafemi in just a few minutes. That's listener feedback, and there's still plenty more piled up in the office. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or send us a message via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, if you think the state and police response to the pandemic is bad, wait until you see what they have in store for us with climate change. We also have Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff will be asking... What color is your smoke? Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Email us your responses. DM us your responses via Twitter. Send them via messages on Facebook. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. The planet's on fire. 
literally. So yes, this is hell if the pandemic is any measure. The state response to climate change as its effects become worse and worse is going to be a nightmare. The problem is not as much how we will be protected from the worst aspects of climate change, although that's a significant problem. The problem is who will be protected and why. Here to help us understand just how the state and police may respond to our crises as they pile up. Writer and philosophy scholar Olufemi Otaiwo is author of the Descent article, Climate Apartheid is the Coming Police Crisis. You can find out more about Olufemi by going to his website, Olufemi Otaiwo, and you can follow Olufemi on Twitter at Olufemi Otaiwo. Welcome to This Is Hell, Femi. Good morning. I just want to point out real quick that Ofemi is also a member of Pan-African Community Action, a grassroots group of African black people organizing for community-based power and a member organization of Black Alliance for Peace, which is redeveloping the black radical traditions, anti-war and anti-imperialist positions for today's material conditions. Find Pan-African Community Action at PACAPower.org and follow them on Twitter at PACADMV. You write in a 2019 report, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights warned about the possibility of climate apartheid, a world in which only elites are able to access basic forms of social protection while everyone else faces the devastating effects of climate crises. Inequality continues to grow. We see this inequality playing out when it comes to the pandemic and how it has affected us unequally, how it has had a far greater adverse effect on poorer people and especially women and people of color, the marginalized, despite mainstream commentators saying we are all in this together. Everything from concierge medical care and the ultra-wealthy having access to daily testing to the non-rich living in more crowded housing and more highly populated areas with less access to transportation and get to less accessible health care. What does today's inequality mean for tomorrow's climate change response? Well, I think there are a number of powerful categories, a number of categories where we can expect inequality to powerfully shape institutional responses. And I think the key um aspect of inequality, the kinds of inequality that we're confronted with is going to be exploitability. Um, so this is something that I talk about towards the end of the article. But the extent to which a population is exploitable by elites to protect them from climate crisis is going to increasingly define institutional relationships. So the obvious examples that came to my mind when I was writing this were um, the incarcerated people who have been, let's say, bribed into um, firefighting for the state of California um, for you know paltry wages, um, and compare that response to the response um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, where incarcerated people were essentially just left to die. Um, that's because there were, there wasn't a ready-made institutional exploitation of their vulnerability, um, so they were hyper-disposable rather than hyper-exploitable. But I think the people on the bottom of the relevant hierarchies are going to be pushed to one of those two categories. Inequality equals vulnerability and exploitability. So how? 
Why is it that when we discuss inequality, when you, we do hear government leaders talking about inequality, when we do, when we have in the past heard uh, from President Obama, uh, why is it that we don't hear about inequality leading to vulnerability? Do we miss something in our discussion and debate over inequality when we don't point out that vulnerability, that exploitability that is caused by inequality? Because inequality just sounds like something that can be addressed through raising, you know, rising wages or whatever. Uh, what happens when we don't uh, also focus on that vulnerability and exploitability? I think the primary reason that we don't focus on the exploitability is, um, and the vulnerability that gets exploited is that to tell the story of that vulnerability and what gets produced out of it, we would have to identify the people doing it. And those people are the people funding the campaigns of anybody running for high office in this country and most others. You write that such crises are already here and they are hitting us with increasing frequency. Researchers say that we can expect more climate change related wildfires, heat waves and floods before the end of the year, all of which will compound the economic damage done by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet how all this destruction will affect us has less to do with wind, rain or sea levels and more to do with our institutions. A simple question of whom and what the political system chooses to protect. Do you, how much is this November's presidential election here in the States, how much is it about who the political system will protect whatever the crisis? That's a difficult question and an important one in a lot of ways. I think what makes it difficult is um, just the kind of standard questions that someone would ask in response to that. Well, well who do you mean? Right. Who who are we talking about protecting? Are we talking about protecting the middle class? What are we talking about protecting them from? You know, I don't think it's any sort of coincidence that um, climate crisis is accelerating at the rate that it is. And yet it has played a marginal role in the election um, going through primary season and up to the present. Because to say anything serious about what it would mean to protect even the bulk of the population, not even talking about um, the most marginalized people, but even just most people from the worst effects of climate crisis. We'd be talking about an utterly transformative political agenda to even approach seriousness on that issue. And that is in neither party's platform. So in a sense, um, it's hard to say that the election is about protecting anything other than one party's control on the former levels of power, which is not to say that there's nothing else at stake other than that. Um, but it's hard to read the actions of the political elites as responsive to the stakes for the rest of us um, in this election season. You also write that whether ecological crises leads to a bleak future of climate apartheid or something more just depends on the politics of prisons 
and police. And we'll get to that aspect of prisons and police in just a moment. But are, are we distracted by only focusing on metrics like sea levels and temperatures and wildfires? Do we not focus enough on the effect of politics on our response to climate change? Yeah, I don't think we focus enough on the response of politics to our to climate change. And I think we've seen that kind of effect in the response to the pandemic as well, which um, uh, Wagner, a climate economist, described as climate change at warp speed. That crisis took which is now being folded into and is compounding the climate crisis, of course. But that climate crisis took a trajectory where people tried to work backwards from models that were answering more limited and targeted questions like how fast does this virus spread? Um, how deadly is it in a medical sense? And tried to answer deep social political questions like how should we lock down? How should we respond? What public health measures should we take, try to answer those deeper questions without, I think, a similar amount of seriousness on the social political side. And in much of the, and in much of the world, especially in the United States, we've seen um, the downsides of that kind of approach of not taking science communication seriously, of not taking the social world as seriously as we take sort of the natural world in terms of how we study science versus how we study institutions. And I think what we found out is something quite a bit like what Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning Indian economist found out about famines, um, that there are a lot of things that seem to deal with the natural world like growing crops um, and things that happen in the social world on the other end of growing crops, which is, um, eating or failing to eat, famine being dying from starvation, right? Mass dying of starvation. And trying to deal with those social results as just kind of downstream of what's happening in the natural world will lead you to you know, getting things wrong, getting things very seriously wrong. And it turns out that the political effects are actually the primary drivers of what happens to people. And we had Amartya on the show back in, I think, 2011 or 2012. And if listeners want to hear that interview about him winning his uh, Nobel Prize on uh, his study of famine, they can go to patreon.com slash this is hell. You write that modern policing in the United States evolved from institutions created to manage perceived crises of social control. And you add that slave patrols became the basis for modern police departments in the U.S. South. In the North, police departments were developed to break strikes. Business men had keys to special alarm boxes, which they could use to alert the police at the first sign of worker unrest. With businessmen having special keys, it would seem that from the very beginning, policing in the United States has been a class project. Can you take that classism out of the police and still have police? Can we have police who equally apply the law to all classes? That's a tough question. I think it would be it would be difficult to recognize that sort of institution as the police because as you as you just explained, 
what the police is as a professional institution ar arose from protecting um, essentially capital and capitalists, um, which are related but different, um, protecting them from unruly labor that didn't do what they wanted them to do, whether the labor was enslaved people in the South or whether it was um, people on the wage system in the North. Um, the purpose of modern police departments, their, their reason for being was in maintaining that social control. And so it would be tough to recognize any institution that called itself police, but that didn't do that as policing. Um, partly because of that, the um, some people have suggested thinking of the um, call for community control over police, which uh, PACA, Pan-African Community Action, um, is in favor of. Some people have proposed thinking of it as community control over public safety rather than over police, which I think gets at this kind of core question. There is a thing that is valuable, which is having some kind of collective way of dealing with problems of public safety, um, but, there, but the actual thing that we have police departments that claim to do that, in fact, are responding to this more sinister kind of goal and are involved in public safety primarily for ideological reasons. And you point out that in both the South and the North, the purpose of police departments was fundamentally the same to secure within the settled frontier, the social order on which profit making activities depended. Why are police necessary to keep profit-making activities going. You'd think everyone wants to profit and everyone wants the benefits of those profits. So why are police necessary in keeping that profit-making going? What does that reveal to us about capitalism, about how the market works? I think it reveals um, a deep thing about capitalism, which is the connection between violence and how violence is organized, especially by the state, but not entirely by the state but how violence is organized in a social order um, is a fundamental aspect of how capitalism works. It's a, how, it's a fundamental aspect of how capitalism got here and it's a fundamental aspect of how capitalism stays here. Um, because it turns out that the people doing the work, enslaved, waged, et cetera, might want to do work on different terms than the bosses want. And that could disrupt all sorts of things. That could disrupt profit-making activities. It could disrupt the personal security of the people in charge. It could disrupt um, the prestige networks that they depend on. Um, and all those things are things that elites would rather not have disrupted. And in any given time or place, they figure out ways of organizing violence to make the structure stay in place. And I think the tendency over recent centuries has been in this professionalized direction where it's police organized in departments rather than militias um, or rather than um, a sort of racially based community sort of, um, answer to a militia, spontaneous mob justice, the kind that were involved in, was involved in lynching. Um, but something like that has been 
key to how the system has operated since it started. We are speaking with writer and philosophy scholar Olufemi Otaiwo, who posted the Descent magazine article, Climate Apartheid is the Coming Police Violence. Olufemi is assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, where he focuses on social and political philosophy and ethics. And we want to, again, thanks to David C. for suggesting Olufemi as a guest on the war on drugs. You write, even if police departments couldn't stop the crime, they could shape where and to whom it happened. It's kind of selective logic is what we can expect under climate apartheid. Policing will not be aimed at preventing climate climate crises from harming anyone, but instead police will be tasked with protecting elites from its downsides. What downsides? Why do you believe the goal of the police is not to stop crime, but to stop crime in certain places? Why is that your perspective? Um, Well, there are a few reasons, one of which is the theoretical point that I just made, right? If you think about it, um, not all of the violence that's going to happen is going to be disruptive to capitalism. In fact, obviously, since policing involves violence, some violence is going to be constructive with respect to the system, right? And other violence will just be irrelevant um, from the elite standpoint. And if we look at how policing works, we see huge differences in the kinds of discretion that police um, apply for, you know, um, issues like public intoxication, so on and so forth. You, you're drunk on a corner in a rich neighborhood and you look like you belong there because you're wearing the like, right clothes and you're the right race so on and so forth, Um, you can expect a different police response than if you do that in a different part of town. And we actually find this bear out in empirical research that tries to look at how police apply different laws and where they make arrests and relate that to demographic characteristics. So um, Elaine Sharp um, and Ayobami Lanionu, who I cite in this article, find spatial relationships between who lives in an area and how that area and importantly, the surrounding areas get policed. And Manioni in particular finds that um, if a neighborhood gets gentrified, the neighborhoods around it um, end up getting policed differently. In particular in New York, he finds that there are high stop and frisk rates in the surrounding neighborhoods. The idea being that um, we don't want the gentrifiers to see all this police violence. That would be, um, that would lower the property value, right? It would make people uncomfortable. But nevertheless, we want the results from that police violence, which is communicating to the racial undesirables, to the underclass that this isn't the place to do crime. If you want to do crime, if you want to make people uncomfortable, um, that has to happen somewhere else. So it's about distributing crime. It's about distributing crime, but does that mean that the police can't stop crime? Why can't they stop crime? Is it because that is not their goal or because crime can't be stopped no matter what anybody does? I think 
What we found from the research is that it doesn't seem to be police department's goal to stop crime, certainly not in recent decades, um, and certainly not in, you know, when the slave patrols were first converting into police departments. Um, so their, their, their failures to stop crime reflect what they're trying to do, which is not to stop crime. Um, but I think abolitionists have said something more interesting and more promising as far as what stopping crime, or I think um, how they'd probably rather put it, stopping certain forms of harm, um, certain forms of um, injury, um, certain forms of violence, stopping that doesn't look like policing at all. It looks like um, giving people better options. It looks like giving people more resources. It looks like redesigning the environment, both in terms of um, inequality, in terms of um, pernicious cultures. Um, it looks like addressing the things that lead people to act in harmful ways in the first place, which just isn't about policing, which is about constructing a better world. And you write that the scheme is an antagonistic uh, security strategy. The safety and stability of spaces for affluent residents is generated from the very insecurity that their policing creates for others. Can we just simply change the places that the police police, the people that the police police? Can't we just change their priorities from being one of protecting those who are the wealthy, who are the people who have property, and instead have them protect other people? Can't we just, for instance, you talk about private funding of the police department through corporations. Can't we just simply take away all that private funding, make it all publicly funded police, and therefore change the people who they believe they should serve and protect? No. <laughs> um, I think why you can't um, is has to do with both how private institutions and public institutions come to be run and managed by the people that um, control them. And in both cases, in, in different ways, but in related ways, you have institutions that are powerfully captured by elites. And people don't even bother to describe private corporations in this way, because private corporations are not things that we think of as things that ought to be democratic, at least not in, you know, um, popular or mainstream culture, right? We just understand that the CEO and the board of directors or what have you, the shareholders, there's some people at the top who call the shots and there's an authoritarian command structure under that and people do what they're told to by people somewhere above them in that structure. And we're okay with that structure being unelected and not being a collective process because we think of it as a different sort of thing than we think of maybe the legislature or judiciary of a country, but in fact, um, they're quite similar in this respect. Um, the easiest way to become an elite 
today is to have already been an elite yesterday, whether we're talking about um, public office or private office. And both of those kinds of institutions, the public and private ones, act in favor of and at the direction of people at the top. And actually in neither of those institutions is there meaningful accountability to the people at the bottom. So we're going into November, we're going to have to choose between Biden and Trump. Um, partly we're going to have to choose between them because of what, what happened at um, during the primary season. But if you look at the processes that produce that outcome, you'll see some input from voters, but you'll see uh, much more powerful in, input from funders, from the boards of um, party apparatuses, from um, the shaping influence of those who shaped our education structures and who shape our media structures. And none of those are elected positions. So in fact, we should expect public or private funding to produce similar, maybe not equivalent, but similar outcomes, protecting elites at the expense of the rest of us, because that's what the rest of our society does. And you point out the little cis investigations, a free database of who knows who at the heights of business and government, found that a number of the world's largest corporations bankroll U.S. police foundations, including tech companies like Facebook and Microsoft and Goldman Sachs fellow financial sector powerhouses like Bank of America and Wells Fargo. Why does the p police, why does it need to be funded by private corporations who get special treatment? Is this because... We cut tax rates and had to turn to corporations for funding the police. Is this simply a budgetary decision that was made and then that budgetary decision informed policing? Um, I'm not sure that there's a um, unique story to be told. There's probably a variety of reasons why police departments went in this way. One of which is just that if police departments can get more money, they probably will, right? They're, they're an institution unto themselves. They want more dollars for the reason that every other institution wants more dollars. And if they can find a way to get outside of the budget process and the constraints that it imposes, they will. But I think beyond that more obvious point, there's um, some benefits to getting money through this backdoor route, namely the one that seems like the biggest deal is the fact that by raising money through foundations, they can, they can short circuit a lot of the forms of public input oversight and accountability that would otherwise somewhat constrain what they do with that money. So um, the Philadelphia Police Foundation, for example, purchased drones and ballistic helmets with private foundation money. The Atlanta Police Foundation launched a surveillance network of over 10,000 cameras, I believe, um, with this private money. And you could imagine what the public hearings for these might have looked like. Um, it was just expedient, if nothing else, to get the money through the private route. And arguably, they were able to do some things that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to do with public money. Um, but it allows them to short circuit 
public processes. And we should imagine that if police departments are defunded, if some of these defunding campaigns win on the public side, that there might be an effort on some police foundations, especially the ones connected to the police departments of major cities to get the funding that they lost um, through the public process on the back door to the private sector. So I think what we're confronted with is a very difficult problem, but the root of that problem is the institutional command structure, the structure of power and funding is, I think, kind of a secondary aspect, a symptom of where power is. How far would ending private funding of the police go toward reforming, if you will, reforming policing? Because that's certainly not, you know, CNN 24-7, they're talking about uh, either the pandemic or the demonstrations that are happening against uh, racialized police violence. And you never hear any discussion of private funding and the link between private funding and the far more militarized police that we have today. So how far would ending private funding go toward fixing the problems that we do have with policing? I imagine it would slow the, it would slow certain symptoms, I think, especially symptoms of over-policing and violent policing that have to do with um, the employment of surveillance software and techniques. I, I do suspect that there's um, an important link there, but the more basic problem with the policing is, as I've said, the command structure, which decides what they're trying to protect and how they try to protect it. And it's that command structure and its links through the state to the prosecutors, which are in league with the police, the judiciary, which has aided and abetted violent policing, um, and the broader institutions, public and private, that decide who and what get protected. And more importantly, in the case of the abuses of police, decide what kind of impunity police get for the violence with which they protect the settled order on which profit-making activities depend. And until there's another structure of power and accountability that is governing how public safety is um, sought after, I don't see any way out of this problem. Just a couple uh, more questions for you, Femi. You write that the debacle between 2006 and 2016 saw the fastest or the decade, sorry, the decade between 2006 and 2016 saw the uh, fastest increases of legal ordinances criminalizing po poverty and homelessness in the U.S. history, including a 52% increase in bans on sitting and lying, an 88% increase in prohibitions on loitering and loafing, and a 143% increase in bans on living in vehicles. Empowered by these ordinances, police departments nationwide got to work harassing people who look out of place and dispersing homeless encampments. What role does that criminalization of poverty and homelessness play in the calls for reforming, defunding, and even abolishing policing? Because, you know, the mainstream media, these aren't people 
who are in the establishment media. These aren't people who, you know, they don't really pay attention to criminalization of poverty and homelessness. That doesn't directly affect their lives or the lives of people around them. So what role do, does this increased in criminalization of poverty and homelessness play in the calls for reforming, defunding, and even abolishing policing? Because that's certainly not something that's going to come up within their discussion. Yeah, it's not something that I've seen in a lot of discussions. And I think it's something that, again, um, the abolitionists, and I would consider myself an abolitionist with respect to prisons and police, um, but the abolitionists have said, um, I think, more constructive things about this. Um, so there's obviously a connection between poverty and homelessness and um, various kinds of social harm and social problems. And an abolitionist response to policing would, I think, necessarily involve addressing poverty and homelessness and giving people the resources to um, avoid um, a lot of the problems that police are called in to respond to at the 11th hour. But I think also one thing that we have to be cognizant of is the connection between um, poverty and homelessness and the police response to it and the kind of ideology um, the ideas that people develop about what police are for, what the world should look like, um, and what their community should look like, right? So calling back um, Elaine Sharp and Lanionu's studies about how it is that police um, respond, at least in New York, where the study took place, to gentrifying communities. Um, something is produced for someone and not necessarily just ruling class people, right? But the people who don't have, um, I hate to put it this way, but don't have, don't have to see things that they wouldn't want to see, I'll put it that way, um, that would mess up their walk to work if they saw too many homeless people. Something is produced for them by this kind of policing. Um, and until we start being honest about that, I think we're going to have trouble drawing the connections that we need to to get people to understand the full scope of the problem that we're dealing with. It's not bad apple cops, but it's also not just police departments themselves. It's the wider way that our society has decided to respond to problems in the economy and to levels of insecurity. They've protected landlords, They've protected titans of industry, and they haven't protected regular people. And as you pointed out at the very beginning of our uh, conversation, the dependence on prison labor for our response to these environmental crises, whether it was at Katrina or what's happening right now with the wildfires out in California, this is only going to make the government response more and more dependent upon prison labor which might lead to more incarceration, which is a very scary thing because we'll need that low-paid labor to save us from climate change. So you've got to read Olufemi's article. Again, we've been speaking with Olufemi Otaiwo, who is the author of the Descent Magazine article, Climate Apartheid is the Coming Police 
violence crisis. You can find out more about Olufemi by going to olufemiotaiwo.com, and you can follow him on Twitter again at olufemiotaiwo. One last question for you, Femi, and our final question that we ask each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question you might hate to, or we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write again uh, how social, behavioral, and political scientist Elaine B. Sharp argues that post-industrial cities use policing oriented around order maintenance to make areas hospitable for creative class residents, a strategy she and others call post-industrial policing. The idea is, uh, you know, creative class residents, they bring their creativity and money to a community, making the area attractive to businesses and investors. The value of property continues to rise, eventually pushing out the original creative class with uh, the end goal of developers to profit as much as possible off the area, hopefully bringing in millionaire residents who pay high prices for properties that continue to rake in profits. So is this all the creative class's fault? The creative class who can only come to the neighborhood through policing? Is gentrification and policing, can we blame it all on the artists? No. <laughs> there's, there's, there's people making decisions here that push people out, and they're landlords and developers. Um, I think it's, you know, I think one of the trends in politics that I've been most confused by is um, the tendency to conflate advantage with decision-making power. And by that, I just mean um, saddling um, people who get treated somewhat better by the system um, with the idea that they somehow cause the problems we're dealing with. There are, there are actual people that decide what the rent is, and they're the people that own property. There's actual people that decide what gets built there, and they're the zoning commission and the developers. And there's just a clear, there's as clear an answer as we could possibly want um, if we're interested in deciding who to blame for um, what happens with residents in communities. Um, and, you know, expanding the list in order to make a culture war make sense rather than just asking the question, why is it that these people can live here and those other people can't, um, I think is an impulse we should resist. Well, I'm very glad to hear that because I live with an artist and that would not go over well if I was blaming her for all the problems with policing and gentrification. Femi, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Again, thanks to David C. for suggesting Olufemi Otaiwo as our guest, and we will be bugging you in the future to have you back on because I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much and uh, enjoy your upcoming weekend. Thanks a lot. Glad to have been here. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon. And you can get our exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Friday and is podcast at the same place shortly after this week on Patreon. Because Fred asked us via email about having Chris Hedges on the show, we are sharing our interview with Chris from back in 2008 when he was on to talk about the war on terror and his article that had just appeared at truthdig.com. 
where he still writes, called America's Wars of Self-Destruction. For those of you unfamiliar with Chris Hedges, uh, he spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, the Balkans. He was a fixer for a really long time. He's the author of the best-selling War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, which is a must-read. And he was a that book was a finalist for the National Book Circle's Critic Award for Nonfiction. So because Fred asked, we will be sharing our 2008 talk with Chris Hedges that took place a few weeks after Barack Obama was elected president, but before he took office. Yes, Chris was trying to convince Obama and his supporters to stop the war on terror. It didn't, and Chris is still writing with hopes that the forever war will someday end. Meanwhile, I'll be heading back up north to small-town America in a lake community that was invaded this past weekend by the Trump boat parade. And those folks out in the sticks, they just might be radicalizing in a good way and sometimes bad ways. But you can only hear our 2008 talk with Chris Hedges and my report on the radicalization of Lake Country by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, remind our listeners again, what's this week's question from hell and give us some of their answers. Uh, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Mornell says, I'm a yellow dog. I'm a yellow dog. I'm a yellow dog. <laughs> Justin M says, if he's good enough for Kasich, Snyder, Romney, Gutierrez, Ugh. Powell, and Negroponte, he's Ugh. good enough for me. Uh, Jeffrey B says, I wish I drank more tequila. John K says, okay, Bernie, if you say so. <laughs> that is a good one. Uh, Sin S says that my overseas absentee ballot will actually be counted. <laughs> Marco G says, worst timeline ever. What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Krimsky K says, better dump Trump. Figgy N says, at least he'll lube me up before he mm-hmm. umps me in the... Mm. Mm-hmm. I just saved myself a little bit of editing there for the <laughs> yeah, WNUR show. Mark C says, go, Joe, go. The alternative will be the end of it all. That maybe sounds better to me than Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, Ronald A says, I'm not voting for Joe. Almost no difference between Joe and Dawn. Both are bad. You got it. Okay. Benjamin C says, vote poo no matter few. <laughs> Stephen K says, I'm sure he'll get pulled to the left once in office. Mm-hmm. What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Luke H says, come on, man. <laughs> that is a good one. David G says, F you, Don. <laughs> Ronaldo M says, I'll be reminding myself that I'm not too cool to vote for this guy. <laughs> Trump must go. <laughs> Definitely not too cool. Uh, Courtney A says, first my mom, now this is hell is boxing me in. <laughs> what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Uh, Jeffrey D says, I'm voting for Bidet. Keep my parts clean. Scott W. says, I'm going to, we're, we're going to make a one-term president, you effing potato. Okay. Daniel S. says, bye-bye, Miss American Pie. This is Hell says, I don't know who wrote this, uh, says, your mom could have voted for D's nuts. Okay, someone is just trolling me with that one. <laughs> it's Richard. Damn, damn it, Richard. Uh, Garrett L. says, you know what? It is all about preserving Obama's legacy. Uh, Ethan M. says, if he wins, he doesn't deliver. We'll end up with President Ivanka. Oof. Kim G. says, dude got a Joe. What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Andrew P. says, as a little bit of vomit comes into my mouth and I swallow it back down as I cast my vote, I think, yes, this still tastes like throw up, but at least it doesn't come up through my nose. (laughs) Uh, Andrew S. says, this is what Lenin would have done. (laughs) David C., uh, who we just talked about, who recommended Olafemi, says, in my Nate Dog voice, it ain't no fun voting for neoliberalism. Hmm. Uh, Taryn C. says, I'll be telling myself I'm doing exactly what Joe recommended in the wake of the police brutality uprising. Shoot him in the leg <laughs> instead of the heart. Damn, that is very good. 
Um, Alec, Who said that again? Uh, that was Taryn C. Okay. Alex J says, wait, it's all into consequential personal lifestyle choices in between voting for right-wing Democrats. And what's that other astronaut doing behind me with the gun? <laughs> and finally, a couple of via Twitter, Facebook, uh, DM, all that stuff. Uh, Rick M says, this is just to stop Trump and Buttigieg will deliver a Marxist utopia in 24. Right? <laughs> Neil C says, this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Flying Needle says, the first time or the second time? Oh, golly. Forgot I'm not a citizen. Hypocrite Reader says, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. <laughs> Clicks heels together frantically. A couple more. Cosmo says, let's go. Nuclear winter. Finally, Greg says, I like kicking myself in the nuts. I like kicking myself in the nuts. I like kicking myself in the nuts. <laughs> we'll be announcing this week's winner in just a moment. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question, Mel, by messaging us via Facebook, tweeting at us at This Is Hell Radio, emailing us. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question, Mel, following Jeff. Real quick, I wanted to thank Edward K. for going to thisishell.com and showing his support. And special thanks to Kilter for his tithing-like commitment that he made to This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support as well. Without your contributions to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, we would not exist. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. What color is your smoke? Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Upwards of 7,300 acres of California vegetation have gone up in flames and smoke as a result of a gender reveal party, and I blame the Catholics. Ever since Boccaccio, they've been hypersensitive about making sure their Pope has a dick. So they invented hormone indicative smoke. When they the new pope, they set off this sort of litmus smoke bomb, and out of the chimney comes white smoke. The entire Vatican population can see that the cardinals have chosen a new vicar for Jesus. We've got a new holy father, they all cheer in Italian or bastardized Latin or even sometimes in secret tongues generally forbidden. But if the pope they've chosen is too full of estrogen, the smoke bomb can detect it. And the smoke that issues from the chimney will be of a pinkish hue. A loud cry will arise from the inhabitants of Vatican City. Pink, pink, in various tongues. That's where we get the phrase hue and cry. And hearing that din outside the sanctorum, the assembled cardinals will set upon the deceiver and mercilessly beat her to death with special miters called bushwhackers. A corruption of bitchwhackers. Until she is pulverized to death. This is all hypothetical, of course, because the legendary Pope Joan of either the 9th or 12th century didn't exist, and no woman, mythical or otherwise, has since been discovered to have infiltrated the College of Cardinals, and, speaking of Cardinals, R.I.P. Lou Brock. As you can see, the origins of pyrotechnics as a centerpiece of the gender reveal party can be located squarely on the heads of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. The woman generally credited with the creation of the gender reveal party, 
who herself denies having created the phenomenon, has come to have more nuanced ideas about gender, ideas that don't concern us here. The name of her blog, High Gloss and Sauce, could imply the most conventional thinking or could signify the queerest of aesthetics, but again, a queer agenda is not our arena for this discussion as much as some might wish it were. I was busy making fun of the idiots who started the wildfire the other day, who think their baby's junk warrants a papal-style display, when I began to get messages that insisted the focus should really be on fireworks being allowed in the desert at all. Let us be clear. Fireworks are not allowed anywhere. There is flammable brush in California this time of year. There are signs everywhere. And in any case, the piece of ordinance which ignited the fire wasn't a firework per se, but a smoke-generating pyrotechnic device specifically designed for making colored smoke, rarely used for anything but commercial shoots and gender reveal parties. Another fire three years ago that burned 45,000 acres in Arizona was set off when a target containing a substance called tannerite used alongside colored powders specifically in gender reveal displays was shot at by a border agent as part of the celebration. The resulting colorful ignition ignited the massive blaze. These devices are common in these wannabe Vatican conclaves. So it's not incidental that people are giving the gender-reveal arsonists a particularly hard time. Nor is it because, as some have argued to me, that if it weren't for all these bourgeois queer politics people up in arms at the gender-binary reductionist flavor of these rituals, no one would pay attention to the specifics of social gatherings causing one or two massive fires on a continent whose entire western shore is combusting. The main thing I find wrong with this incorrect and obtuse judgment is the characterization of queer politics as the sole province of identity politics-obsessed liberals. Funny that this is a kindred critique to the one centrist libs levy at leftists discontented with the Democratic Party. You're so privileged with your luxurious retreat into a cocoon of rarefied radicalism is just the centrist version of you're so bourgeois with your focus on discrimination against non-binary and queer sexualities and your cis this and trans that language at the expense of class analysis. Both accusations of privilege are wrong and destructive and feed from the same instinct to see potential comrades as class enemies. This is neoliberal divide-and-conquer rhetoric. Under the enormous, spectacular, grinning specter of uber-capitalist big brother Booty McBootface, 99% of us should be allies. Today's radical gender politics is rooted in the Stonewall Uprising. How can you not get behind sex workers, drag queens, and other walkers on the wild side rising up and kicking the shit out of the cops? We need to figure out how to mend a very big, very problematic fissure in the people's movement for redistribution of wealth. There's no question identity politics can run off the rails, but so can the attempts to defang them. And they should not be seen as merely a distraction from the socialist project, as much as neoliberal dominance might manipulate them in that direction. A revolutionary socialist analysis folds all oppression and resistance into a unity of people's power, or it will not succeed. And it has to succeed. There are very few engaged people of color or of broad-spectrum sexuality I've come in contact with 
who think otherwise. But I don't pick on the gender reveal partiers because they're binary reductionists, although they are, but that's their own problem, which they will, of course, be passing on to their children in the form of neuroses that will take a lifetime to mitigate. I pick on the gender reveal partiers because it's already stupid to make a big deal out of your child's genital configuration. It's stupid when the Jews and Muslims cut off part of their male baby's foreskins. It would be orders of magnitude more ridiculous if they were to shoot that bit of foreskin into the sky on a rocket that whistles and bursts into a rainbow of crackling sparkles. Hey, my baby has a miniature tube steak and grapes. Or my child has a little baby twat are already absurd things to blurt out. But then to add, so have a cigar, just amps up the doofishness. Oh, but that's the one tradition of normies that I like. Oh, shut up, Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, you're stupid. But to say, hey, my baby has a nozzle, or baby got a taco, and then add, so check out these explosions, moves it all from quaint absurdity into Rococo silliness. But the real topper is when you're forced to say, we didn't mean to start a 7,000 acre wildfire. We just wanted to make a public spectacle of our baby's cock or pussy. Now we're really embarrassed. See, that would have been enough. But now the authorities are keeping the names of the parents to be secret to respect their privacy. These are people who not only wanted to basically wave their offspring's junk in front of a party, they wanted to launch their baby's junk into the sky so it would shine among the stars. These are exhibitionists on steroids, but suddenly they're too demure to reveal their identities? These folks make Robert Maplethorpe look like Queen Victoria. The planet is on fire. I'm certainly not the first person to say it. I'm not even the first person on this show to say it, but it's true. The planet is on fire. Here in Hollywood, smoke is very much of the moment. You want to disregard color? You want to throw one's cares about gender gender microtaxonomies to the Santa Ana winds? Now's your chance. This isn't about black or white smoke. This is about pink or blue smoke. This is about everything going up in smoke. We've seen some spectacular crimson sunsets at the end of our gray and brown haze-covered days. It's like the old saying, every cloud of smoke has a bloody and fiery lining. Look, I'm no George Carlin. I'm not even whoever they'll choose to play George Carlin in the biopic. But if our brother George was here, you know he'd be all over this like sweet potato tofu stir-fry on quinoa. And I would hope that we'd all have the good sense to allow him to have his fun. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, always great to hear your voice. Stay beautiful, my friend, and enjoy your week. Thank you, Joe. Chuck, (laughs) vote for bidet. By the way, uh, Lou Brock, very overrated as a baseball player, very underrated as a haberdasher. Please look up the Brock umbrella, one of the greatest hats that has ever been invented (laughs) by anybody. The guy would never take a pitch. He couldn't catch a ball. He couldn't throw the ball. He was the worst leadoff hitter of all time. So just but keep that in mind. He had a great, he had a great Keds tennis shoe. <laughs> That's he had that too. All right, Jeffy. All right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is Hell. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? 
Uh, F5-ing? Nah, that's it. The answers I liked the most were, well, who's kidding who? There's one that stands out more than all of them, and that's Taryn's response. I'll be telling myself I'm doing exactly what Joe recommended in the wake of the police brutality uprising. Shoot him in the leg instead of in the heart. Taryn, you have won the new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which everyone can get right now at thisishell.com when they click on support. Taryn, just send us a message via Facebook and send us your mailing address and we'll have that into your uh, in the mail immediately. My answer to this week's question from hell is I will not be voting for Joe Biden because I live in Illinois and have the luxury of knowing my vote uh, won't uh, count at all for anything as Illinois is a solidly blue state and will thus give all its electoral college votes to whoever the Democratic Party's candidate for president is like they always do every four years. If uh, the vote for president was actually you know, rooted in democracy and not slavery, we'd determine who the president would be by popular vote, and I'd probably be voting for Biden. So thank you, slave-based and undemocratic electoral college that both Republicans and Democrats support, despite it being institutionalized racism and white supremacy. Thank you, so I don't have to vote for Joe Biden. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers this week. Alex, who's on Monday's show? Next week, I got plenty of lines in the water and I got no fish biting. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of the week. Is so nothing for Tuesday or Wednesday? Or nope. No? Oh, wow. We I got a bunch of... Whoa, I, know I, I will have a lot of stuff coming in probably the next uh, 48 hours, I would imagine. I, probably in the next couple of hours. Well, I got, I yeah, I got three requests out for Monday, so I'll here soon. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover and this week's hangover or this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is a cure for pandemic related over drinking cause anxiety, which is water, light meal, shower, do nothing, and reconsider your alcohol fueled response to COVID 19. And anxiety is a completely made up thing. It's so stupid. Just, you know, ignore that hangover cure, all right? Thanks to all of this week's guests, including political historian. Annaline DeGene, who is author of Freedom and Unruly History. Thanks to writer, lawyer, and activist Caroline Turvent, who is author of When Protest Becomes Crime. And finally, thanks to today's guest, writer and philosophy scholar Olufemi Otaiwo, who wrote the article Climate Apartheid is the Coming Police Violence Crisis. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be sharing our 2008 talk with Chris Hedges, and I'll be telling you all about the uh, radical news coming from small-town America. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.